0: It had been a long, long time since he had told the story. Decades. And even then he'd left out bits and pieces, claiming not to remember all of it. The various military shrinks, the doctors, the company people, all of them had wanted to know. Perhaps to live the experience he'd suffered vicariously, their own foolishly pleasant lives perhaps not enough for them. He'd revealed some of it to David, who had tried to understand, and in the end, been unable. And now again his new assistant. For Crespi to fully comprehend his research, the story would have to be told again. Maybe for the last time. Church suddenly found that he wanted to tell it. All of it. Even the parts that he had tried to forget through the years, tried and failed. He was tired of being alone. Tired of the dreams and memories that he had grown accustomed to locking away, sharing with no one. Crespi might hear him, might hear the unasked plea, and might in some small way relate to the experience. Total acceptance would always be beyond their grasp. But to make the attempt, why not? Why indeed? Church cleared his throat, and after a moment he began to speak. Although edited for television, Tonight's thriller contains scenes of suspense and violence which may be unsuitable for young viewers. Friendly discretion is advised.
1: Dark Horse Comics project profile, Alien's Labyrinth, written by Jim Woodring, illustrated by Killian Plunkett. Alien's Labyrinth, a four-issue limited series from Dark Horse Comics, is the product of an unlikely creative team. The writer, Jim Woodring, is a self-taught comics artist who lives in Seattle. He has worked in the comics industry for over 20 years. The illustrator, Killian Plunkett, is a 22-year-old art school graduate of his native Ireland and marks his comics debut with this series. Woodring is perhaps best known for Frank in the River and Tantalizing Stories, both from Tundra Publishing, which have received seven Harvey Award nominations for Woodring and co-creator Mark Martin. Woodring's comics have also been featured in numerous anthologies, including Pictopia, Hyena, and the Best of the Decade. Woodring's most personal, surrealistic work. Jim, was recently collected as The Book of Jim, Fantagraphic's Books. In the preface, Woodring wrote, I grew up believing that horror is not only fun but sacred. Horror for me was a divine emotion which accompanied the reception of oracular tidings. Woodring's first parade writing for comics was the adaptation of Todd Browning's classic film Freaks, Monster Comics. When Dark Horse editor Ryder Wyndham, formerly of Monster, was assigned to develop an Aliens miniseries, he contacted Woodring. The Freaks series was not a standard, traced-off-the-screen adaptation of the film. Jim brought his own sensibilities to the story. He paced the script so everything was eerily subdued, then unfolded into a disturbing, truly frightening horror comic. I knew Jim would write a fine miniseries for Aliens. As the first Alien film could be likened to a gothic horror story in outer space, Aliens Labyrinth could be read as a murder thriller. The setting is a remote space station where a group of scientists study behavioral responses of aliens. The experiments are carefully monitored, and every safety precaution is considered, so the crew is genuinely shocked when a technician is killed by an alien. A doctor suspects that the death may not have been an accident, and tries to uncover the truth. The murder investigation evolves into a deceiving, sinuous nightmare. I really wasn't sure how Jim intended to end Labyrinth until I read his final script, said Wyndham. It surprised me and put a knot in my stomach. Since most of the story takes place on a space station random search for an artist who is capable with technical backgrounds as well as figures. He remembered when he first saw Plinkett's unsolicited art samples. There were several drawings of fantastic creatures, including a predator. What really caught my attention was a pantomime continuity, in which a well-dressed man and woman walk through a garden. Another man runs into the garden, and his head seemingly spontaneously explodes. The rendering was astonishing. I offered Killian a tryout for aliens on the spot. In the first chapter of Labyrinth, the protagonist, Colonel Dr. Anthony Crespi, mentions that he had an earlier run-in with Aliens. I asked Jim if he would write that story for Killian. Woodring and Plunkett produced a kinetic adventure serial, Aliens Backsplash, for Dark Horse Comics. It's more than a little grisly, said Wyndham. Readers will really have to brace themselves for this one. I've been drawing Geiger's creature, said Plunkett, since I saw the original Alien, which I think is the best film in the series, so it's great to get paid to do it. I hope anyone interested in goo, bizarre extraterrestrial reproductive habits, slime, and teeth will pick up Labyrinth. Woodring expressed similar sentiments. I hope that Aliens Labyrinth will entertain, perplex, and shock readers and leave them lying in the sawdust, clawing at the ceiling, and croaking heartbreakingly for more. Readers can get their first look at Woodring and Plunkett's collaborative effort, Aliens Backsplash, in Dark Horse Comics number 12 and 13. Aliens Labyrinth number 1, of 4, is priced at $2.50 and shipped September 21st, 1993. Do you want to identify by your name on the show? Yeah,
2: yeah, sure. That's fine. I mean, I'm the same on Twitter. Okay. So yeah, all good. Billy Crine. Right, since
1: we're going to do an Aliens podcast in the midst of this, mm-hmm. I like to play around with giving people an identity for the Aliens show if they want to be a colonial marine or they want to work for the corporation. or Do you have any kind of cute little thing or you just want to be you?
2: Um, yeah, maybe. Well, I'm half inclined to say it Mondo, but yeah, I, I think I'd probably be one of those hapless victims on the planet in Aliens who doesn't realize they're being fed to the machine. <laughs> um <laughs> It's not where I'd want to be, but I think if I if I looked at my, my life, that's probably where I should be. Newt's dad or something, you know? Yeah, Oh yeah. I would, I would
1: definitely be a victim on one of these things. That's a
2: guaranteed. In my big 80-wheeled space truck. Yeah, about <laughs> <to get Ian. laughs>
1: I know you from Twitter. I think you've done some podcasting, but I've not heard you on a podcast before.
2: I was only on some friend's stuff during lockdown. I've got various folk who are keen to get me doing podcasts. Mm-hmm. like, you should do a podcast. But there's a difference between being a guest or if there's someone who's got the motivation and mm-hmm. the chops to actually get it moving. I might have that space in about 10 years mentally, but I've got a four-year-old now. Right. I want to say I started with Aliens, but I might have started with Alien 3. I remember my experience of watching Alien 3 at home with with a friend when I was about 17, at his place. So that would have been like the dying throes of VHS, and everyone hated it. I didn't hate it, but I I didn't have any context from the previous film, so I'm pretty sure maybe Alien 3 was the first. And then I went back. I'm pretty sure I picked up the first release of Alien the Aliens director's cut and Alien 3 on on DVD and that was all before the fourth one had come out I used to love the director's commentaries on both Alien and Aliens are just amazing Ridley Scott talking about building two versions of Ash's head and then just sort of burning one of them because they realised that they had to take the needed as opposed to today where you'd maybe have 25 versions everything he talked about in the director's commentary was about being thrifty and working on a budget fond memories of both the films and the director's commentaries from my late Teens. I've seen all four of the original Aliens films. haven't seen any of the Aliens Predator films. I've listened to the show. I hear the different sort of takes on it. My take on the Alien films is that, like a good comic, I hear the issues with continuity between films. But I feel like if you're going to get, I don't know, Alan Moore to do your first one, and then Chuck Dixon to write your second one, and then I don't know, Warren Ellis to write your third one, and then some French bloke to do your fourth one, you're going to get very different flavours of film across the board. And, and I love them all in in their, in their own right I want to say the first one is if I, if I had to pick a favourite if only one were to exist then I'd pick the first one but I really enjoy all four of them for the different things they bring I've not committed enough to go further into Aliens, Predator I've read some of the comics but the films just struck me as like a cashing I couldn't bring myself to do it I saw Prometheus and whatever the second one was called and I, I honestly don't remember much about them so I enjoyed them enough I enjoyed the aesthetic the visuals were just dazzling i maybe the same with films as I am with comics that that the visuals can make up for a poor story experience. So I'll I'll find myself listening to something like your show and find myself going, oh yeah, that's true. You know, no, it was shit. Looked nice, but it was rubbish. So yeah, Prometheus, I just sort of blanked them out. I'd be more inclined to include some of the comics as canon than I would Prometheus. It's
1: interesting because I'm so used to people seeing Alien 3 and loathing it. And uh, as you said, in part (laughs) because you're coming at it as a babe you know, (laughs) into this franchise. You didn't hate the movie, but did you love the movie? Like, is it a situation where you were just curious at what point did you actually go oh i'm actually a fan of
2: this material my interest in the films i was always a bit of a sci-fi kid i was into my comics by that point point. aliens are quite sort of comicy movies i'm a fan of terminator predator and the other sort of big 80s films so it so it all just sort of got sucked up into the same sort of thing i kind of carried that fandom forward but i'm never such a fan of any specific material that i'll stick with it come hell or high water as soon as it gets terrible i'm away I I knew I was in as soon as I saw a third one. And, in fact, to digress a little bit, the Alien 3 video game was the thing that really sucked me in. The Super Nintendo video game was just fucking brilliant. They're past, spit acid, and are invading NES decks everywhere. Blast life-sucking facehuggers and exterminate deadly aliens in the post-pounding NES blockbuster Alien 3. The music was amazing, and that made the film better. (laughs) Certainly my memory of the film better.
1: It's always great when the ancillary stuff adds to instead of detracting from the experience. The whole gatekeeper mentality where it's like, oh, if you didn't go in the right way, you're not a real fan. It's like, (laughs) I I, I definitely, I'm glad I'm I'm slowly but surely letting that kind of stuff go because we're all coming at this from different areas, different perspectives, especially when it comes to comic book stuff. So few people get into these characters in the younger generations from comic books because who the hell reads comics anymore but old guys like us. So you can't delegitivize that fandom, why wouldn't a video game add to the experience? I've never actually played the Alien 3 game. Me and uh, I think you're Derek, talked about the comic books, the little two-page stories they did to sell those video games. Yeah. And I've played some of the games that they made off of Aliens a few years prior to that, I think. Uh, But I've never played the actual Alien 3 game. You give it a thumbs up then. You've had an actual first-person experience with that. 100%. It's
2: like six levels. Each level is a big map, 2D, parallax, scrolling, the best of Super Nintendo graphics. The music is a The game itself is pretty repetitive, I think, you know, I've played it again recently, but the atmosphere that it creates, and there's a whole framing area for the game so you have these individual levels where you go off into like a lavary area or a prison cantini area all of those levels are joined by this map which is mostly in shadow so you walk around in the shadow area and then just get fucked up by a little dog alien or one of the big ones or a face hug or something you're constantly being attacked and then you've got four weapons and they're all legitimate aliens' weapons grenade launcher flamethrower machine gun and it just feels brilliant yeah I, I, I don't know about the Genesis version but the Super Nintendo version is you might as well be playing Aliens as Alien 3 I'd say try and get a ROM of it or something more watch a playthrough but it, it's a really good feeling uh,
1: this is the kind of thing I love that's one of the things that's, I, I really enjoy about this particular podcast is getting to hear about an area of the franchise that I have no familiarity with and getting to hear about that second hand like okay what's your experience with this and you tell me like, oh that's really cool I get the secondhand enthusiasm <laughs> it's like you love it it's obvious you love it and I love hearing that love coming through and, and you're discussing it <laughs>
2: i i put it at like I, I put it high on my list of super nintendo games of like best of that and in terms of like rarities or like games no one talks about I, I put it at the top of the list of like games that you should play if you haven't how did you gravitate toward the comic books or did you gravitate to them this is more of an adult thing getting into comics jim lee x-men x men x-factor x-force image and of course dark horse was bubbling up in the background as well so i read the mcfarlane Spawn 8 got me into alan moore i read Spawn. 9, got me into Neil Gaiman, Red Spawn 10, Dave Sim, Frank Miller. So Dark Horse were on the radar and um, it was Deadliest of the Species. The Chris Claremont Aliens mini was the first thing I tried to read and as I mentioned to you following your show on it, I didn't understand the fucking word of it. It was just <laughs> incredibly dense. Couldn't make head nor tail of it. So I think I got about four issues in but it was on my radar at that point so I was keeping an eye on the Aliens books. And I've got a lot of them but I think I've got a lot of Aliens comics that you haven't covered as yet i've got some of the stuff you've covered retrospectively but most of the alien stuff that i got firsthand comes after what you've covered so far
1: funny it's almost like a baton passing because derek's been one of the main people on the show up to this point like one of the main rotating guests but yeah. i, I recorded with him on earth angel that's sort of his swan song with the franchise he's open to reading new material loved a lot of the crossover books and so he's amenable to coming back for that kind of stuff but as far as the stuff that he read in this time period alien 3 put him off of the franchise and he's He's done. Oh, now. So it's funny that he's sort of like got a bit of an exit, and then here you're coming in, you're like, oh, you haven't even gotten to my stuff yet. So that's kind yeah. of. Fertile Hive. Introduction to the Aliens Labyrinth Trade Paperback by S.D. Perry. They're everywhere, the aliens. Hidden tunnels. Dark corners. Shiny, wet, and teeming with the gleaming black creatures that wait to feed. Just when we think that they've run out of ways to keep us terrified. Those metallic teeth that snack, dripping, the lithe and powerful bodies that prey on human flesh and incubate their parasitic young inside the victims. Just then, they attack. I wasn't old enough to catch that first glimpse of the slick and horrifying being that mercilessly stalked the crew of the Nostral Well, at least not in the theater. I remember sneaking downstairs to see it on cable as my parents slept. Volume low. Listening for the creak of the floorboards as ash spouted whitish goo all over Ripley. And the seemingly indestructible alien was finally blown into space. I was in seventh grade and I was captivated. And I had to leave the lights on when I snuck back up to bed. I got to see the sequel on the big screen and I was knocked out of my seat. Do you remember the first time? Do you wonder during the opening scene if it was going to burst out of Jones the Cat? It's funny. I recall having my ticket torn and walking into the popcorn-scented darkness just expecting to be disappointed. Sequels generally bite, so I had learned. Waste of money. It's a damn good thing I hadn't placed any bets. It was as good as, and maybe better than, the first. Tense and funny and scary as hell. The characters were amazing. The dialogue realistic and often hilarious. The action relentlessly intense. The entire audience, and it was standing room only, clapped when the lights came up. And that's some kind of ovation, applauding a screen. I clapped too, even the third time I saw it, and I was never alone in my appreciation. So for about five years after, that was my take. The alien flicks. Top tens. Have you seen them? I was a fan. They even cropped up in my gender media class. The barriers they had broken by introducing Ellen Ripley to the world. When my dad told me that Dark Horse had bought the rights to Aliens, and that he was going to adapt two of the graphic novels in book form, I was suitably impressed. My father is one hell of a science fiction writer, and I'm objective, really, though I've always been partial to horror. But in the Aliens universe, there are both, and both genres actually work together beautifully. Not to cheat my own horn too loudly, but I've always had a knack for writing. Thank the gods, too, because besides waitressing, it's all I know how to do. So when dad signed on for a third book, he invited me along. Here then was a chance for me to work with the fictional folk I had come to know and love. Because the third movie knocked off the main characters, my father had changed the names in the books. Newt became Billy, Hicks became Wilkes, and Ripley, I got to bring her back. Dad polished up the military action I hammered out the blood and guts enthusiastically. And we got through it, even though I'm still not sure what a carbine is. The final result was Aliens, The Female War, based on the outstanding work of Mark Verheiden and Sam Keith. And Dark Horse didn't stop there. It branched into Aliens vs. Predator, which I had the honor of adapting all by myself. Lonesome. Well, the renowned Steve Perry did help a little, and I hope we did ride right by the superb efforts of Randy Stradley and Chris Warner. Into the first book, Pray. There are some amazing writers working on the bookend of this universe. Robert Sheckley, Dave Bischoff, and Sandy Schofield to name a few. And Steve of course. And hey, me. Just another fan who had the incredible good fortune to be the daughter of a first class writer. Okay, total humility aside, I do have some talent. I did the movie novelization of Time Cop for Dark Horse, my first solo credit. And a few short weeks ago, I was asked to go back to the alien system with a new set of comics to adapt, Labyrinth, which you now hold in your hands. A truly black and terrible glimpse into the mind of a mad doctor, beautifully scripted and drawn by Jim Woodring and Killian Plunkett dark wet, nasty. I love it. I couldn't ask for a better birthday present. And today, in fact, I turned 25. Or a better job. Beats the bloody heck out of working for tips. Go figure. Just when I think that all the stories have been done. That there are no more worlds for the alien drones to infest. We get a mad scientist who actually has a reason to be mad. A by-the-book military hero. And yet another strong and capable woman to work with. Set up to do battle on a shadowy space station. The alien hives are alive and well. Thanks to Dark Horse Comics and 20th Century Fox. Terrific drawings and great scripts that continue to present us with interesting and creative stories to mull over, to keep us in touch with the consistently heart-pounding action, the drones that never die, but lie in wait to jump out of the darkness, and scare even the bravest reader into a cold sweat, and I pray they'll never stop. S.D. Perry, Portland, Oregon, 1995. Now, tell me this, though, I I covered Rogue fairly recently, did you ever get around to reading Rogue?
2: No, I don't think so, remind me who drew it.
1: I can't remember if it's William Simpson or Howard. Oh, Oh, Will
2: Simpson, yeah, Will Simpson, no, no I didn't, because I didn't mind his art, but there was a period where dark horse colors were absolutely the worst thing in the world. And it didn't do him any favors, so no, I, I, I didn't. I do quite like his art, and I probably would have done if it didn't look like it did. But <laughs> need to look at a publishing timeline to work out exactly where I dialed in. Rogue was probably just before. Hive was one that I tried to get up the shelves mm. because I loved the cover. I thought it looked really interesting, but again, I just couldn't get on with what was going on inside. So I think I bought it and probably never read it. Yeah, Hive was quite a bit earlier. Kelly Jones fan now, and Kelly Jones Batman fan not long after. I'm trying to think maybe I'm making a mistake what did did Hive so Hive are for in covers that looked amazing but was shit inside (laughs) that Um, was that was genocide okay thank you genocide was the one where I was like yeah these aliens comics really aren't for me and I'd missed Hive at that point because Hive was before genocide right?
1: correct yes I believe it was probably immediately prior I mean for the most part I've tried to do the stories in chronological order with a few weird alterations like Deadliest of the Species because it was so long and crossover with so much stuff, it just made more sense for me to do that on the front end rather than the back end. But more or less, yeah. we've been going in order, and so I can kind of just look at what podcasts have come out to know which one they came out with. So in that yeah. case, you're looking at Hive, then you're looking at the Alien 3 adaptation. Oh, no. Okay, so Genocide was actually before Hive, then. Based on, based on oh, my wow. podcast, Genocide came yeah. first, and then
2: Hive.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: so so it's possible that Genocide put me off so hard I never even looked at Hive. That's likely. I sort of wish I'd done the research now in terms of the publishing order of what I like but a lot of the Aliens comics i got post-publication as well like so not too far after but like Richard Corbin stuff the Guy Davis stuff Alien Salvation would have been maybe the first that I bought hardcore because I loved it and then from then on kept a proper eye on the comic franchise that's stunning but yeah a lot of that earlier stuff I haven't got any context for like the Mark Verdehein, I picked up the deluxe black and white hardcover of the Verdehein and Nelson stuff after listening to your show I got was sort of G'd up for it you know, that was amazing amazing looking stuff
1: Labyrinth number one sold about 28,500 copies from Capital City's di- distribution in the United States that was only one of the distributors you had Diamond you had Friendly Franks you had a bunch of different distributors so you had to do kind of a multiplier but you, you got to figure probably under 100,000 total amongst all the different distributors uh, randomly Aliens Labyrinth number two was September 1993's number 90 title per Diamond as reported by Wizard Magazine number 27 but the first issue didn't make it into the the top 100 the previous month for some reason the four vortex dollar comics that concluded the comics greatest world launch initiative were the only dark horse comics to break into the top 50 and only the second issue of deadly of the species ranked number 53rd joined labyrinth within the top 100 so you're starting to see a decline in the impact of dark horse and especially the aliens books as opposed to where they were before all the universes started springing up which you're familiar with because you were buying that same material yeah. <laughs> so capital city reports sales of 21,975,000 copies on the second issue, a loss of 6,500 copies from the first issue, meaning they they shed a quarter of their readers between the first and the second issue of the book. Aliens Labyrinth number 3 was ranked 118th in units and 88th in dollar sales for November of 93. 93, of course, being the year of the bust, so the entire industry is probably seeing a decline. Yeah. It was still Dark Horse's fourth-ranked book for that month. Capital City reports sales of 19,750,000, shedding another 2,000 readers from the second issue. Aliens Labyrinth number 4 was ranked 123rd in unit sales sales for January '94 and 93rd in Dollar Share. It was 7th place for Dark Horse and 3rd place among the Aliens titles. It sold almost 40% as well as that month's issue of Amazing Spider-Man, capital reported sales of around 16,500 copies, losing over 3,000 readers from number 3, ultimately having dropped 42% from the debut. Every issue of Labyrinth sold thousands less than its parallel number in the Rogue miniseries from earlier in 1993. Whether this was waning interest in a market oversaturated with Aliens books, because there were so many Alien books in 93, or merely the overall industry. Crash is up for debate now. Not having read Rogue, did you happen to hear the podcast about it? Yes, did you happen to find it weirdly familiar to
2: you? Well, no, I, I honestly thought, like, <laughs> as I was listening to it, I thought, oh, he's changed his mind and he's doing it with this. Like, I, I really did. You jump the really gun and
1: th- he'd covered the issue that I was supposed to cover. What the hell happened? Yeah, no, I,
2: I yeah, I, I thought, well, he's just okay change of plan um i didn't really like i had to keep checking in to realize that you're talking about a different comic it sounded exactly the same in terms of like the setup and everything yeah and Um, and
1: even the letters column because it was essentially an ongoing series of mini-series they have mm -hmm. letters for rogue in labyrinth discussing a lot (laughs) of the same plot points
3: You're like, what?
2: Yeah, yeah, that, 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 I mean, listen, it took me, I got about halfway through your episode before I realized that you are talking about a different comic. So the fact it wasn't Killian Plunkett was like the main giveaway, but otherwise it sounded like exactly the same comic. I, I guess there's only so many plots with, with Alien, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Labyrinth's pretty great. I'm inclined to reread, I might read Rogue as a pirate thing online or something and just just see how it stacks up. Hey,
1: and what kills me too, there's two credited editors on Alien's Rogue. It's, it's Anina Bennett, who is the one who done the heartbreakers trip in Dark Horse Comics with Paul Guinan and then you got Ryder Wyndham so I'm wondering if maybe one editor was coming in and the other one was leaving because I think Wyndham is the sole credited editor on Labyrinth so (laughs) it's just bizarre how many plot points they share in common while presumably being probably developed in isolation from one another you know it's so weird that they would unfortunately have to come back to back and share so many plot elements I've of course read them back to back because I read Rogue for the solo episode and now I've read Labyrinth for the episode with you, and you're the one who specifically wanted to do Labyrinth, they both are really good. And honestly, I think Labyrinth is the better of the two at telling a similar story. But Mm. why specifically did you want to start out talking about Aliens with Labyrinth?
2: Primarily, Killian Plunkett on the art is excellent. And then Jim Woodring, who has his kind of, you know, his his thing is um, a lot of kind of dream comics. It's kind of weird that he turns up on a Dark Horse miniseries, but I think he really nails the psychological horror aspects of Alien and Killian Julian Plunkett's art is detailed he builds kind of an amazing world but at the same time he really captures the body horror it. So I think between the pair of them, they do something close to a perfect Aliens comic. I don't think Plunkett's art is perfect, and he does some weird-looking people, and there's something all a bit uncomfortable about it, but that kind of adds to it in a way. I rate it really highly as a comic, regardless of its Alien merit.
1: And is this one of the ones you came back for, or did you get to read it as it was coming out?
2: I came back for it, but early on. So it was probably one of the first Aliens comics I read, but as a trade, not long after it, it had finished.
1: Can you tell folks a little bit about the story, as especially they already heard me tell a similar story last month. So probably (laughs) better for you to tell your version of that similar story.
2: Yeah, I can do it in my BBC radio voice.
1: It was supposed to be an easy job. With a particle plasma projector, you can literally vaporize any alien where it stands. But there's always a few hundred more aliens than you think. Don't miss Aliens Backsplash, an exciting two-part tale of the perfect mission gone bad.
2: The framing sequence or the opening story gives us a little bit of context on the character who will go on to be the main character labyrinth
1: okay what are the odds here a small group of colonial marines deep underground with no usable transport and minimal firepower 40 bazillion ill-tempered aliens could be bad find out for sure in part two of aliens backsplash and you said that you read this in trade paperback form so that was incorporated into the trade right yeah
2: backsplash is Is up front yeah
1: is it within the story or is it like a prelude it's up
2: front so it's um the first chapter of the book is backsplash then it's into issue one you'd think it were like five chapters of the same story because you lead straight into the same lead character
1: it was of course serialized in Dark Horse comics and my understanding was that the editor had read that bit of dialogue I think it was in the first issue where he's talking about having had an encounter with the aliens in the past and been the only survivor of that particular mm-hmm. episode and so they it was suggested well why don't the same creative team do this serial in Dark Horse comics which is a weird thing to suggest and in particular there's uh, editorial material where the the both Jim uh, Woodring the writer who's also of course an artist and the artist <coughs> would draw these editorial doodles on the backs of their pages, on the envelopes as they're mailing stuff yeah. back and forth, FedEx. And there's one image of Woodring having smashed, very much like the meme, the internet meme, where he smashed his face into the monitor so many times that it's covered in blood, the monitor's coming blood, and so writing something like on the lines of, are we good? Are you happy now? Yeah, uh, is had, it finished had, now? I It's and
3: I have learned how to emulate a normal human being pretty good, but if I revert to type, I am a wild eyed maniac I would rather be a wild eyed maniac and if the consequences of living and behaving that way weren't so dire I would be out of control because I like it that backslash does
1: definitely feel like it's like how am I going to get a three part serial out of what I have to tell with the story and it's a good <laughs> serial I enjoyed it it's a, it's, a, it's much more of the action more like a, an aliens as compared to the more alien qualities of Labyrinth yeah. It's but it's also a completely unnecessary story aside from it kind of sets up the nature of our chief protagonist, setting up how things are going to resolve as a result of that. This is Colonel Dr. Anthony Crespi.
2: Yeah. The weirdest thing in that Backsplash story is that they've got these amazing new suits designed especially for slaughtering aliens, and then they slaughter so many that they get covered in blood, in, like, alien acid blood. And then someone says, aren't they acid proof? And he says, no, acid resistant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then the acid eats through the suits and kills them. <laughs> it's it's a weird sort of deep into it. Make sure you read the instructions before you wear it. Well, it's a funny little
1: story. It's such a life thing too. It's like, if I'd read that as a kid when it was coming out, it probably wouldn't have had much of an impact on me. Reading as an mm. adult who's constantly being told by people who don't know how things work, how things ought to work in this idealized way of how, oh, well, we've come up with this thing and this is the perfect way to do this. Is like, did you actually ask anybody who's involved with these processes you're talking about? No. <laughs> yeah. um, did you think about this little thing like like i don't know making sure that it was acid proof rather than acid resistance oh no, no no are we going to have a pool of acid blood that's going to eat our troop carrier and then uh, have <laughs> aliens descend upon our troops and kill our troops because instead of having this ultimate weapon that's going to kill everything in its path we've actually created this complete bombed out situation where only one person is going to make it out. it's yeah i completely completely could see myself in that same situation based on life experience in the years since this comic book came out i, I think, think you're
2: touching on like despite the fact you might have struggled to do this short story. There's probably room for like a bit of elaboration onto like the project managers and the Weyland-Yutani are constantly fucking them up because they're greedy and want to benefit from the aliens or whatever. This would just be another aspect of their horrible corporate nature is like development incompetence and terrible project managers who don't actually do the research. They missed a beat. There's probably about eight pages missing from this book that would have perfectly fleshed out how incompetent the company is.
1: It still works without it because the implication is clearly there, I think. Or, or rather, <laughs> if, if you if you've had these experiences in life, it's clearly there. As a kid, I might have missed that. Yeah. But I, I think exactly. it shows in the uh, letters columns. They talk about how Woodring was a 30 year comics professional before doing Aliens, and I'm looking yeah. at his biography. He's 52, so that I mean, he was born in 52, so he was already 40, over 40 by the time he was telling the story, and that wisdom shows through in his storytelling. I feel like
3: when I was a kid, when I was very young. I used to have what I now call apparitions. I used to see faces and big eyes and scary rotating objects hovering in the air of my room and eventually I realized that these things were not real that I was just having neurological misfires and that these were just going on in my mind and that they didn't have any significance you know I really do see the world in a strange way I've, I've kind of had to work at keeping it that way since it became my bread and butter I, I think For a lot of people who have problems or quirks like that, the most important thing to do is to put it behind you as soon as possible. I've actually worked at keeping this stuff alive in me because it's like the it's grist for my mill, it's what I use, and I like it.
2: He worked with Jack Kirby on cartoons in California as well. So however long his comics career is, there's an animation piece there as well. I'm sure I'm sure some of that life is is coming into it. He understands what he's writing, you know?
1: Aliens may be virtually impossible to control, but what if man could anticipate their actions? In a deep space research station, doctor Paul Church studies alien behavioral responses. How does an alien track its prey? Can an alien distinguish whether a human is will an alien ever retreat from an attack test after test patterns of behavior are revealed to church patterns which are predictable the station is carefully supervised every precaution is taken but everyone knows the risks when an apparent saboteur is killed by an escaped alien the site of scientific research gives way to a homicide investigation colonel dr anthony crespi the stalwart survivor of aliens backsplash suspects that the alien subject may not have escaped on its own and is determined to uncover the truth it's a straight ahead
2: action story for two issues and then when you get into the main story it's this character arriving at a research station run by a charismatic lunatic managed by a clearly you can tell his boss is evil because of his pointy eyebrows you know it's, it's quite a caricature um he has a
1: sweaty quality they don't draw the sweat but there's a, something kind of greasy about the way he's drawn yeah I'm, I'm
2: envisaging that if he were in a film he'd be played by the guy who accompanies sam beckett in quantum leap like oh dean stockwell yeah he could be <laughs> dean stockwell would be a good guy he backup. has a nixonian
1: vibe to him i would say
2: yeah exactly exactly that he
1: looks um, like the small town sheriff uh, who's trying to run down the duke boys or something you know he's like the, yeah, exactly the guy who runs the prison that like has a human trafficking side hustle or something <laughs> yeah,
2: he's spe- specifically there to make some money and not interested in who's going to fuck up along the way
1: prepare yourself for an alien anatomy lesson better open wide in an acid resistant lab colonel anthony crespi assists dr paul church with an alien autopsy and reveals the inner workings of the biomechanical Creatures. Crespi is in for even more dangerous revelations as he and Lieutenant Sharon McGinnis continue their investigation into
2: the death of fellow crewmen. Needless to say, the scientist is is dodgy, but he's playing with the with the aliens' instincts. There's a lot of like really, there's a lot of real deep dive on the alien kind of physiology and and some of how the they actually operate and the, what triggers them and what can repel them. So I think I think if you're like a an alien like a full on aliens nerd, I think this book's probably got an awful lot of um handbook of the marvel universe type stuff about the aliens right
1: colonel dr Cresby continues his unrelenting hunt to catch a killer aboard the innominata but he gets more than he bargained for when he questions dr church in a nightmarish flashback sequence church recounts the grisly details of how he survived in an alien hive fans won't want to miss this glimpse into the alien's inner sanctum it's funny because again the story is so similar to rogue but at the same time it does not feel derivative to me it feels like you're definitely getting the vibe of the aliens, but it's not one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, this is a takeoff of that one scene. Oh, this is a takeoff of this one idea. It just feels like, okay, I'm I'm working within this sphere, but I'm going to tell my own story, and yeah, you've got the the corporate intrigue, yeah, you've got the colonial marine situations. It's not like it's completely alien to the aliens lore, but it also doesn't feel in any way derivative of any previous alien stories. It feels like this is somebody who has an angle and has a story to tell that applies to the aliens universe. I really appreciated that freshness, especially if that freshness were Weren't there, given when it was published, that could have been an, an issue, but it, it feels more like two takes on the same premise from two different creators who were working isolated from one another, and they both come up with interesting approaches that I think are both valid. Tony Crespi has narrowed down his list of subjects for the Inomanatsa slayings. Admiral Thaves wanted Mortensen's body for spare parts. Dr. Church wants to continue his bizarre alien experiments, and Lieutenant Sharon McGinnis wants revenge for her fiancé's death. Crespi may reveal the killer, but no one can be prepared for the shocking conclusion of Alien Labyrinth. Well, it, it, feels a, it feels
2: a little bit like going back to the idea that your mate dropped off Aliens around this time I dropped on. It also feels like this particular story isn't dependent on any of the Verdeheim stuff or any of the continuity that's been set up in the, you know, that, that kind of that dead horse that they ended up flogging. It started off as really interesting comics, but by the end of it, they were starting to repeat themselves. And, and I, I wonder whether Rogue wasn't the back end of that and Labyrinth wasn't the front end of just some stand alone stuff that didn't rely on the early stories.
1: This was one of those ones too, because it was out in 93, that means that there was an overstock. I remember seeing Rogue and Labyrinth lying around in discount bins. I don't remember if they were in my shops. but I probably would have read them if they were in my shops, but I know I'd seen them in the, the cheapy bins over those poor years. And because I'd had, you know, not really gotten into the aliens comics when i had tried them the various times Uh, even with hive where i love the artwork the story didn't really grab me looking at that cover to the first issue with guy in a lab coat with sneakers it's like this isn't necessarily (laughs) what i want from my aliens especially in that time period yeah but then i read the actual comics and i read the letters around the comics especially as an adult this is exactly the kind of aliens comics i want to be reading and and i love (laughs) that this scientist with the alien in the monitors and that attitude that's projected by that image it's almost like telling me no, 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 this is, this is, this is one for the grown-ups. This is one, this is actual sci-fi that we're going to do with this one. Yeah. You know, come, come on down. It, it's got like that, almost like a swagger to like, we don't, we're not going to sell you big mechs and guns and, and explosions. It's like, this is just a, this is just a scientist. It's just a simple scientist. We're going to tell you a science yeah. story now. And I appreciate that. And then reading, it, it's weird that I had such a similar experience with both Rogue and Labyrinth in that I open up Rogue, I get a page or two in. I'm like, the art on this story is too damn good. Somebody hasn't to want to cover this with me. I can't believe nobody wants to talk to about this glorious artwork. And then with Labyrinth, I crack it open and that first page where you're seeing the, the monitors booting up and him coming out of the hypersleep and the, the little conversations that are being done by like instant message basically what they didn't know wasn't instant message basically at the time but what plays that yeah. way today. The vibe is perfect. So right from that first page, I'm like, I think I'm going to dig this. I think they, they've got the, the attitude right and they never lost me for the rest of the story. It's like, I'm, I am I was so pleased to get the opportunity to finally read this and what I want to do is want to do like some kind of was like yeah, the writing was really good on this one. The the art was really good on that one. If they just mashed up, it was like no, I really loved the story and the artwork on the previous one, Rogue. Although I don't think the writing held up for the entire story. I think it started strong and then it got weaker as it progressed. And then I thought that stuff like the aliens king was like some shit from a video game. You know, it's like oh, we got we need another boss for the the yeah. level. We've got an alien king now. <laughs> so I wasn't so much into that. Where with this one, the story definitely picks up pace and becomes more action packed toward the back end. And it has a very unusual structure. With the, the you know all the flashback well like for me personally too my reading experience is a little weird because I even though I knew better I read Labyrinth Number One first and then I was like oh yeah I was supposed to read the comic the uh, Black Horse comic flashback story yeah. so then I w- went and I read that so it's almost like he's impregnated within the story and it kind of it worked doing it that way and I go back to the story and then they have their own flashback in the third and into the fourth issues and then you have the resolution of the story so it's it's such an odd structure but it's more novelistic and the fact they even managed to pull that off on a four issue miniseries with a two-part serial appended to it after the fact they even talked about how in the letters columns they went in there and they altered dialogue from one of the issues because they'd done the story during the production of labyrinth and therefore they were reincorporating that material like they, they were incorporating the alterations into their mm. their original produced material I, i'm amazed that they managed to do something that sophisticated that well in such a short span of time and i would have to say that i very much as much as i like I think that it's much better done here particularly on the writing end I just really value the story but also I do love the artwork and it's not as flashy fan favorite kind of looking as I feel like the Will Simpson stuff was but it's so perfect for the aliens as a concept uh, they, they are, it's such a great representation of them as horror characters and as sci-fi characters and it's worked so well within, within the story I wouldn't trade this artist for, for anything on this story and whereas you talked a little bit about the funky faces that's actually one of the things I really really love about this story and we've talked mm. about this uh, I think several of my I guess have talked about this where we, you're you're trying to follow the story and you got all these soldiers that all kind of look alike and you don't know who's who. Never a problem with the story. Every single character that's, uh, that's relevant has a very distinctive face. I, I'm positive that he was probably referencing people in his life because they don't look like movie stars. They don't look like anybody that I know but I bet it's somebody that he knows and being an art school yeah. student he probably had access to willing subjects he probably was used to drawing from life and like all these characters are so well realized both in the text, but especially visually, that I feel like I've watched a movie. I really, I, I know no no Holly's got that uh, Alien TV show that they're, they're still working on. They're supposed to come out. You know, I think they're supposed to start filming next year. Uh, they've had to push it back because of Fargo and stuff. If they had just, if they were just doing an Alien anthology TV show, and this was a, an episode or two, that would be perfect for me. This would have been a great yeah. movie. I think. There's another one of those instances where it's like, oh, I wish this comic book had been the movie instead of one of the other movies. You know, I'm glad that you were more forgiving of Alien Resurrection than I am um, but if this had been in place of that and they there was no Ripley and they were just telling this story or maybe some sort of a mashup of Rogue and Labyrinth that would have been a great flick so I, this is definitely one of my favorite of the alien stories I've read from Dark Horse and I think a, an example of how to do it right and again I'm really glad Rogue came out before Labyrinth because I think that I would have been much more fightful about oh, sh- talking about Rogue yeah. on the back end I think I like Rogue but Labyrinth is so much the whole package and done so well and very much brings that heavy metal vibe to it as well it yeah. feels like it's well, getting back to the origins of the property that I, I I love this one to pieces this one was awesome
2: yeah I, I think um, so So they didn't lean too hard into the claustrophobic sp- space station thing so that was obviously part of it but it could have been huge it could have been small like it wasn't a big aspect of the story that it was like a like the Salaco or whatever you know so it was just they were on a ship but it wasn't so claustrophobic in, in terms of like derivativeness like the closest thing you get to any kind of like massive nod to the pre-existing stuff is the waking up to the digga, 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 like the the talking computer screens or whatever and then from there on it's its own thing and then like spoiler but the, the idea that your main character dies what well, half a dozen pages before the end to be replaced by the the female character who's trying to survive and then ultimately it's all for nothing because the scientist survives and, and you've got a whole it will be business as usual I mean it's just I, I just thought is fucking excellent and it wouldn't be made as a film because nobody would that they, they wouldn't credit film audiences with the tolerance of putting up with an ending like that I yeah I just love it I mean, and my, my, my critique of Plunkett's faces um, are more about me trying to be objective about his style because because basically I, I love it I love it on Unknown soldier I love it on the few comics that he did with Ryder Wyndham who was the editor on this um, before he went off to to work on Star Wars stuff so so yeah I mean I, I think he's I think he's he's brilliant
1: and the whole tiki 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 you're talking about uh, which is the sound effect I use for the uh, letters section of of the podcast yes (laughs) it's back to the fetishization it's the same thing I was talking about with Derek and seeing the numbers on the ammunition on the guns in the um, what's his face the second volume yeah yeah, where where you're seeing the thing that's the thing for the movie he said the thing he said the thing you know (laughs) for me that's that same sort of thing where it's like oh okay I, this is similar to the openings of the first two movies. I get that, but that's what I want. You know, I, I want that little thing where it's like, okay, you you you've, you're on the same length as me. You you you're you're not forgetting that that material is there, and then you're going to use that as a springboard. But you're not forgetting that I want to see those little things. You know, you, you said the thing, and now I'm happy. You know, you,
2: uh, you, yeah, you
1: made the reference. I need you to make that reference, and now we can move on and tell something new. <laughs>
2: exactly. I know that you've seen the film. We can we can carry on. Um, another thing worth mentioning about the difference between Rogue and all the pre previous alien stuff and this is that you got Matt Hollingsworth from The Colours so it's a young Matt Hollingsworth he doesn't you know it's not it's not preacher and Matt Hollingsworth goes a long way in his career but this is early Matt Hollingsworth so it's the first time you've probably got someone who with half an idea of what they're doing with The Colours so you have things where it's like people on screens and there's no black lines and it looks okay instead of looking like dog shit which it does in some of the earlier Dark Horse stuff so I think this might have been one of the very first Dark Horse getting over with their hump of terrible colors as well and it happened to be on a really well written and really well drawn story.
1: I, and I don't know if this is the editor or it was just a you know a, a perfect storm of timing but you're right, this comic feels like the whole package. It feels like everybody who's involved with it is bringing the, their, their proper professional game and as you said, there were some issues with coloring especially in the earlier stuff, not like the original coloring personally, but I guess part of it was it, it was different it wasn't like, you know, with, with mm. Marvel and, and, and Dark Horse where it's, no, sorry like Marvel and DC where it's like here's our flats here's our flats here's our color guides and stuff I like that they had the painted coloring and I didn't like the fills that they had and the awful collected editions which I've griped about on the show before yeah. but you're right the, this is a time period where I stopped like if you go to the collected editions I haven't been talking about the coloring lately because they've faced they've been faithfully reproducing the colors from this point and a little bit before this and it looks good and it looks professional quality and it doesn't stand out as like this looks like old coloring versus the computer coloring that would come in later in the decade it looks like it's it's contemporary or even in it uh, ahead of the curve in terms of when it was published so you're right i yeah. think the lettering is better here i think that the editing is better i think that everything kind of works it feels like they it's the machine is running correctly by this point <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's horrible to put in those terms because part of what i like about this is that it feels accomplished it feels like you've got good people who know what they're doing even though again this is killing plunkett's first comic book ever i'm sure there are people that looked at this and was like you know crying themselves sleep. That this was this is what his first comic <laughs> book looks like. You know, what yeah. is your first comic book look like? Yeah, it, it sings. Everybody here is on the, is is doing the job, and I, I I do notice and I do appreciate it because there have been times where at least one element in the Dark Horse comic book would be like, and eh, that's really not that's not up to par. You know, this one it's all excellent. I, I would say yeah. one of the things they talk about in the letters columns that I don't dispute. It would have been cool to see painted covers on this miniseries, and I think that might have helped the sales a little bit because the art style that works so well in the storytelling doesn't necessarily make for the strongest cover images on the successive issues. I don't think they're bad. They're just, yeah. you know, they, you you could see where somebody would look at that and be like, eh, yeah, I'll ch- I'll wait for the trade or, eh, this one doesn't really look like it's one of the ones for me. It doesn't grab well, you the well, way well, like well, a John are. Bolton cover would grab you. So I, I think
2: that's the thing. They they are painted, but they're not, sorry, just flicking through my trade. They are technically painted, but yeah, as compared to like Arthur Sewardham and, and John Bolton or whatever, it's, it doesn't have that fantasy thing. Thing of like hey nerds hey sci-fi hey fantasy people come and look at this you know it just it looks a bit like the comic just slightly fancier or whatever you know um, yeah I, I really like like going back to your man with his the the scientist in his lab coat in his trainers it's hardly the same as Brian Bolton uh, uh, John Bolton having uh, an alien looking like he's about to French kiss a woman in her vest um, <laughs> yeah
1: having read the story I love that cover I, I love that it, it tips its hand to really what the story is is going to be about. This is about the bad scientists. It's not about these heroes. The heroes ultimately prove to be quite disposable. And yeah. again, getting back to Backsplash, what's cool is, while I appreciate the conviction of the main antagonist, the fact is, the story repeatedly sets up that he's a guy who's quick to action. He's somebody who's quick to judgment, who doesn't necessarily think things through. He doesn't. He, he's probably a smart person, but he doesn't have great critical thinking skills, great critical judgment. And so, he's constantly manipulated both by the Doctor and by by, uh, his associate, and ultimately he 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 doesn't have the the faculties to realize when he's being manipulated and when he <laughs> should actually be listening. Who should who should I be listening to right now? He's too easily swayed. And you go back to back splash. It's a similar situation. He basically survives by luck. If if yes. his, his CEO hadn't saved him and then ultimately got himself killed, he should have died. It looked like he was going to be the guy who would die. But since we're seeing this thing in retrospect, we know he doesn't. But it's it's just yeah. you know pure luck. And so they try to talk about him like he's some sort of military hero for being the one who didn't die and you know it was dumb luck and it's not that he doesn't have skills it's not that he doesn't have he's not capable but he's he's not going to be our grand hero who's going to save the day either ultimately and that's why I like the story because it is a horror story ultimately it's a sci-fi horror but a lot of these stories have leaned more toward the action or tried to like sort of turn it into a comic booky situation instead of properly adapting what the view the feel is what the genre is in the movies this one feels like it's very much part of that universe that that sensibility i feel like this is the sort of thing dan o'bannon would have approved of you know it, it yeah. it's got that that dark streak but it is horror it is sci-fi it's not trying to be a comic book and given that you've got people particularly you've got you've got a comic book writer who who's an indie guy who who does stuff that's not mainstream and then you've got mm. an artist who comes from the art world who goes into storyboarding and character design and movies and stuff so these are sort of like interlopers into the comic field to some degree like in terms of mainstream stuff and so they're bringing different sensibilities and I think in, in the sensibilities are very welcome because it's much more fresh and much more cinematic than a lot of the other alien stuff that I've read so far so to go back
2: to the, like the, the filmic aspect of it I'm wondering who would be the director for this you know if, if they were to if they were to film it is this a Sam Raimi film maybe
1: um, so I think it's something important. more subdued you know
2: okay. like uh, it, it's too
1: early but the, like someone like the guy who did Cube or um, oh, yeah. maybe the director they had for Hellbound uh, where you've got that at scale but scale on a budget and, and horror sensibilities uh, I, don't, I don't recall the, the gentleman's name off the top of my head but so, that kind of vibe Definitely, I would definitely go English You know, uh, with the director <laughs> on this one I, I think you've got to have somebody who's not going to to wimp out on the, the punchline of the, the whole thing
2: yeah no I, I mean yeah. I, I, I'm with you I, I, I struggle to find much negative to say about it to be honest um, so I, me, I, I, I think that would that's be saying me something.
1: <laughs> but I have no negative comments on this one no no oh, there we go AJ Lowe, Between the Pages blog, Billy Hines, who added, Starting on Burns' weird alien comic and transitioning to a deep dive on Burns' career as writer and artist, as always no time wasted on breathing from Frank and as always fun, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Leiden, The Comic Crush, Comics, Classicus, Dark Mark, Gear Watchers, a Marvel What If podcast, Doc Strange, Dirk Ashton, Ed Moore, Francisco A. Harons he did the Monster Max, History of Comics on Film, Illegal Machine, who added, Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the history Lesson here. Jeffrey Brown, They Them, Johnny DC, K King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Lamar the Sent of Martin Kessler, Mike at Sedalians to Me, Motha Zachariah Edward Los, Princess Allison Marie, Richard Field, Sean Gilmore, Stefano Jr., Superbound, Wonder and Warrior for Peace Podcast, Zoravi is with Jameson. On Tumblr, the Earth Angel Gallery was liked by Doug Love, 3D.V.3, Wizard 666 Sin Titulo, Adrian Mackey, Nathalie me blog my stuff and x 1972
2: this has been the rolled spine podcast all audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws no copyright infringement is intended
1: coming in August. november Dark Horse Presents, Aliens, Colonial Marines.